So I hope this evening's message will do the same for us because I think the greatest attack on the Christian faith today is an attack on the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. So more than ever, we need to contend earnestly, not passively, but earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Well, it was 11 days ago we celebrated the 506th anniversary of the Reformation, yet many pastors in America have either forgotten or dismissed the gospel truths that many of the Reformers gave their lives defending. It's really heartbreaking to see that some are even saying that the Reformation was a mistake, that it divided the body of Christ. A growing number of evangelicals are joining hands with the Roman Catholic Church to reverse the Reformation and reunite all Christians under the power and the, pap- the power and the influence of the papacy. They've jumped on the Pope's ecumenical bandwagon to help him build his global religion. So where do all of you stand on this most important and vital issue? It's my prayer that this message this evening will bring clarity to what was black and white 500 years ago, but has now been painted gray by so many evangelical leaders. So questions we're going to seek to answer this evening. Why was the Reformation necessary and what did it accomplish? We're also going to look at Rome's strategy to reverse the Reformation and how they have seduced so many evangelical leaders to join hands with them. And then how can we contend for the exclusivity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Hopefully answers to these questions will better equip us to fight the good fight of faith. So when you look at the history of the church, the ancient church is described in the first 600 years when scripture was proclaimed. But then you have the medieval church that existed for the next 900 years. And this is when scripture was hidden from the people. It's called the dark ages because the light of God's word was not shining forth. And then we have the Reformation church where God raised up reformers to restore scripture to the people. And now we're in what's called the modern or even the postmodern church where scripture is often ignored in many of our churches throughout America. On October 31st, 1517, Catholic priest Martin Luther defiantly nailed his 95 Thesis to protest the selling of God's forgiveness through indulgences. He was outraged that salvation was being sold like any other commodity on the marketplace. Luther was the flashpoint that caused the long, smoldering, moral and doctrinal corruption of the Roman Catholic Church to suddenly burst into flames. His 95 Theses were an attempt to reform the Roman Catholic Church according to the Scriptures. It was All Saints Day, November 1st, where Catholics were granted indulgences for the remission of sins if they venerated relics of saints and confessed to a priest. Martin Luther strategically nailed his thesis on the door the day before Catholics would go in and and venerate these relics of dead saints. This is necromancy. This was forbidden in the Old Testament, but the Roman Catholic Church 
continued this pagan practice. In fact, it still does even today. The idolatry is part of the great deception that holds Catholics in religious bondage. It was the Castle Church of Wittenberg that had over 1,900 relics of dead saints on display. And these relics would be fingernails or teeth or bone fragments or even spots of hair. Anything that belonged to a saint, Catholics would venerate this and they would receive a plenary indulgence, which means all of their sins were wiped away. It was at 1521, the Diet of Worms, that Luther appeared before Charles V, the Roman Emperor, and also bishops of the Roman Catholic Church. And as you saw in the film, he was asked to recant. But he stated, and you can see the, his books and papers there on the table as they stood in front of them. He stated, unless I am convinced by Scripture, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Well, ever since God delivered me out of religious deception, I have been inspired by Luther's unwavering fidelity to the truth of Scripture. In fact, Luther's testimony of salvation is very similar to mine. For 35 years, I never opened the Bible. Oh, I had a Bible, the large Roman Catholic coffee table version. It sat there on my coffee table collecting dust. But I never opened it because the priest said it was too difficult to understand. But I opened it at age 35. And it was there I had a crisis of faith because what I was reading in the scriptures was diametrically opposed to what I was taught as a Roman Catholic as far as salvation. And so during this crisis of faith, I did the wrong thing. I called my uncle, who was a Catholic priest, and I said, why does the Bible teach something different as far as how we are saved than what the Catholic Church has taught? And he said, well, that's just not true. I said, well, take, for example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works so that no man may boast. You know what he told me? Mike, God doesn't mean what he's saying there. (laughs) Seriously. And so he pacified me. I continued to study and there was no way to reconcile the word of God with the Roman Catholic teachings. And so like Martin Luther, it was the spirit of God and the word of God that set me free. I cried out to the Lord for salvation. God granted me repentance from all the doctrinal error that I had been taught as a Roman Catholic. And my life has never been the same. God literally turned my life upside down. And and one of the first things that I realized was that there's only two things in this life that are eternal. And that's the souls of men and the word of God And I wanted to invest the rest of my life on two things that would last throughout all eternity. Well, Martin Luther remained steadfast against all religious and political opposition, even under the threat of death. And Luther would be the first one to tell you that he did not cause the Reformation. He gave all the credit to God in his word. He said, all I have done is put forth, preach, and write the word of God, And apart from this, I have done nothing. The word 
has achieved everything. God's word was setting people free who were being held captive by religious deception. Are you familiar with 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, that unbelievers, we are to pray for them. They are in opposition to the gospel. We are to pray that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so they can escape the snare of the devil that holds them captive to do his will. Unbelievers are held captive by the devil. And Jesus said in John 8, when he accused the Jewish apostates of being children of the devil, he said, a true disciple of mine is one who will abide in my word. Then they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. Free from religious deception. Free from the bondage of religion. Free from the power of the devil. That's what the word of God does. We need to proclaim it faithfully. Luther knew what caused the Reformation. It was the word of God empowered by the spirit of God, preached by men of God in a language that people could understand. Luther exposed the papacy for what it was. Having discovered the truth of God's word, Martin Luther declared, we are of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. I declare that I owe the Pope no other obedience than that of Antichrist. And I agree with Luther that the Pope has the spirit of Antichrist, but I believe 500 years after Luther now, I think when we see what's happening in the world today, I think the papacy is really the office of the false prophet because no other man on this earth has the power over the nations of this world the reverence and the devotion, the infallibility. And so I think it's the false prophet. And he will point the world to a man who calls himself the Christ. Luther's writings exposed many of the doctrinal errors of the Roman Catholic religion. After being set free from religious deception by the truth of God's word, Luther began exposing the errors that once held him captive and these errors are still deceiving Catholics today. Luther's bold courage and unwillingness to compromise is a great model for all of us today because everywhere you look, the word of God is being compromised. Luther said the preacher should not be silent. He should speak out candidly without regarding or sparing anyone. Let it strike whomever or whatever it will. He said, I bear upon me the malice of the whole world, the hatred of the emperor and the pope and all of their advisors. Luther stood alone. What bold courage he had. Well, scripture was the focus of all the reformers. It was the ignorance of scripture that made the reformation necessary and it was the recovery of the scripture that made the Reformation possible. And it was the power of the scripture that gave the Reformation its enduring impact. The common thread among all the reformers was an undying commitment to the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. They were willing to sacrifice everything, including their own lives, 
to get the word of God into the hands of the people. God's word was the true power and ultimate authority behind all they said and did. So why was the Reformation necessary? Because the Bible was hidden from the people. It was the dark ages. The people did not know what the word of God said, and so they were easy victims of religious deception. The Roman Catholic Church had distorted the gospel, and because of that, they were under divine condemnation. Sunday morning, I will be exegeting the passage, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, and I will show you from the authority of Scripture that every Roman Catholic clergy member is under divine condemnation for distorting the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to go on a rescue mission and rescue precious souls out from under a religion that is under divine condemnation. The Reformation was necessary because Catholic priests were false mediators who continued the work of redemption on an altar. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, the Catholic Church said, no, we need to continue the work of redemption on an altar, and we will have sacerdotal priests to deliver saving grace through the sacrifice of the Mass. We know from 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one qualified because he is God's perfect man and man's perfect God. The Roman Catholic Church had departed from the faith to follow doctrines of demons. It shouldn't surprise us because Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4, in latter times some will depart from the faith and follow doctrines of demons. When I was a member of Believer's Chapel, a couple of uh, Roman Catholic nuns came in to our service, and they were easily identifiable. They were wearing their habits. So after the service, I went up and engaged them and asked them what brought them there. And they said, well, we're taking a course in junior college, and we have to go out and find out what other religions are teaching. So they began asking questions about what took place. Each time they asked me a question, I gave them an answer from God's word. And this went on for about 15 minutes. Finally, one of the nuns said, how is it you know the Bible so well? Every time we ask you a question, you know right where the answer is. I said, I was once a Roman Catholic just like you. I, did, I didn't know the Bible, and so I was easily deceived. And I never want to be deceived again, so I study the Bible. Well, now they were ready to leave. I said, wait, before you go, can I ask you a question? Are you forbidden to marry? Oh, yes, yes, we've taken a vow not to marry. I said, did you happen to know that's a doctrine of demons? And they gasped. I took them to 1 Timothy 4, and I let them read that. And one of the nuns said, wow, we're going to have to talk to our priest about this. I said, well, when you talk to the priest, make sure you get answers from the Bible, just as I gave you answers from the Bible. Well, Rome had rejected the perspicuity of the Bible, saying its message was not clear or understandable. They said Catholic priests were needed to interpret the Bible, thus placing them in authority over Scripture. And my uncle, who was a priest, went to seminary for eight years. I said, how many of those years did you spend studying the Bible? 
he boastfully said six months. This is who Catholics are going to to understand what the Bible teaches. Well, when you look at Reformation teaching, you're familiar with the five solas. Sola Scriptura is said to be the content of salvation, and that is everything we need to know about the gospel is found in the scriptures. Scripture alone is our authority. In fact, scripture is our supreme authority. And then you have sola gratia, that's the means of salvation. God saves by grace alone without merit. Romans eleven six, I think Paul nails this. If it's by grace, it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. You know the definition of Roman Catholic grace? Grace is something Catholics must merit in order to be saved. Well, how do you merit the unmerited favor of God? Please understand this when you witness to Catholics. They believe they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But the solas are so important. It's grace alone. It's faith alone. That's the instrument of our salvation. God saves through faith apart from works. And then you have solus Christus. Jesus Christ is the one mediator of salvation. It's Christ apart from Roman Catholic priest. And it's the righteousness of Christ that saves us, not our own righteousness. You know, when you look at sola fide, and I, I shared with you Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I was on a missions trip to Mexico, and there was a Bible on a kneeler in front of a statue of Mary, and I knelt down on the kneeler. I turned to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I got a yellow highlighter out, and I highlighted those two verses because those two verses have set so many Roman Catholics free. And by the way, you know, they emulate what we are doing, and so the Catholic Church now has a study Bible. And so as soon as it came out, I couldn't wait to go to a library, and I, I opened it up to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 to read the study note. There was no study note. What are they going to say? Exactly what it says? They didn't want to say that. Well, if you get the first four solas wrong, then you're also going to get the fifth sola, and that is soli deo gloria. The triune God is the provider of salvation, and he alone is glorified. Here you see the Reformation wall in Geneva. It honors the great leaders of the Reformation, William Farrell, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, and John Knox. And the five solas were necessary because if you were a Roman Catholic in the 16th century, the Catholic Church said you are saved by grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, and it was according to Scripture plus tradition, and glory was going to God as well as Mary and the saints. So the Reformers, having read the Scriptures, recognized, no, it's grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4 why we have Scripture alone as the content of our salvation. 
Paul describes the gospel there as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to what? Scripture. It points us to no other book, no other authority. Christ alone. So what did the Reformation accomplish? It returned the Bible to the people in their own language. The Reformation was a reawakening to the fact that men can be saved by reading the Bible unaided by the church. The gospel is so clear that the Holy Spirit is the only teacher we need. For this reason, the Reformers wanted to put the Bible back into the hands of the people in their own language. As Catholics were reading the Bible, the truth was setting them free from religious deception. The Roman Catholic Church tried to put a stop to this Do you know how they did it? They banned the Bible. They put it on the list of forbidden books. Now, why would a church that says it's a Christian church that lifts up the name of Christ put his word on the list of forbidden books? Because it was causing a mass exodus. People were reading the word and it was setting them free. The Reformation also reestablished the word of God as the supreme authority in all matters of faith. Whenever scripture is not the supreme authority, Christ will be dishonored. The gospel will be distorted. Faith will be misplaced. The church will be ineffective and men will steal glory from God. And that's what we saw during the dark ages. The Reformation also reestablished the Lord Jesus Christ as the only head of the church. I don't know if you're aware, but the papacy steals three titles given to the triune God. The papacy refers to itself as Holy Father. How dare the Pope steal the title Holy Father? But the Pope also steals the title Head of the Church. He didn't die for the church. He didn't purchase the church with his own blood. How dare him steal the title from the Lord Jesus Christ? And then Jesus said, I must go, but I'll send someone in my place. He wasn't referring to the papacy, but to the Holy Spirit. And yet the papacy takes that as well, the vicar of Christ, stealing titles from the triune God. The Reformation also recovered the biblical doctrine of justification by grace through faith. The greatest accomplishment of the Reformation was to show people how they could become right with God. Think about this. If you get justification wrong, you cannot be right with God. It was the Reformers that said the doctrine of justification was the hinge that open and close the gates of heaven. If you get justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. That's how important this doctrine is. So let's spend a few moments looking at the doctrine of justification. It declares the inflexible righteousness of God as the judge who must punish every sin that has ever been committed by everyone who has ever lived. The righteous judge in heaven must punish all sin. The only way condemned sinners can be justified is through faith in the sin-bearing, substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ alone, 
who satisfied divine justice. Divine justice must be satisfied. You know, one of my favorite questions to ask people as I'm sharing the gospel with them, why did Jesus have to die? You'd be surprised the answers you get. And some of them are close to being true or truthful. The most common answer is because he loved us. Well, that was his motivation, but why did he have to die? Because of our sins. But why did he have to die for our sins? They don't realize that the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will surely die. The penalty is death. In order for divine justice to be satisfied, someone has to die. And so I share with them that there's only two places God satisfies divine justice. One is at Calvary's cross, where you can trust Jesus Christ as your substitute, and divine justice will be satisfied there. Or you can say, no, thank you, Jesus, or reject his offer. But one day you will meet him at the great white throne, and there divine justice will be satisfied when the unrepentant sinner Here's the most terrifying words anyone could ever hear. Depart from me, I never knew you. And they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. This is why we need to make sure people know the doctrine of justification. Well, let's look how Rome has distorted this most important doctrine. The Bible teaches us that justification is the change of one's legal status before God whereby a condemned sinner has been acquitted and declared righteous. That's why you see a gavel on the screen. It's a forensic change of a man's status. No longer condemned, but now justified. But Rome says, no, justification changes the inner man, not his legal status. And I give you the paragraph numbers of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the authority of the Catholic Church. The Bible teaches justification is instantaneous. When the gavel comes down, the legal status has changed. Romans 4 3. But Rome says no, justification is a process, it's the ongoing renewal of the interior man. Paragraph 2019. Well, Rome says initial justification is by the sacrament of water baptism. Now, this is really perplexing because the Bible clearly says justification is by faith in what God accomplished in Christ. Can a seven-day-old infant put their faith in anything? And yet, most Roman Catholics are baptized as infants. The sacrament of justification It's also said to be the sacrament of regeneration. This is how far off the Roman Catholic Church is on the doctrine of justification. The Bible teaches justification is permanent and never lost by sin. The legal status of a justified man is as unchangeable as the righteousness of Christ. Oh, how I love to share Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering... He has made perfect for how long? Forever. Those who are being sanctified. 
a permanent right standing before God. But Rome says, no, justification is temporal. It can be lost by sin and regained through the sacrament of penance and good works. And that's why on the screen you see arrows going up and arrows going down. As Catholics do good deeds, their right standing before God increases. When they commit sin, their right standing before God decreases. In fact, the Council of Trent dared to say, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, let him be anathema. Now keep that in mind. You and I are condemned by the Roman Catholic religion up to 100 anathemas from the Council of Trent. Keep that in mind as we see evangelicals calling for unity with the Catholic religion. The Bible teaches that God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. But Rome teaches final justification is for those who become righteous. Justification is the imputation of Christ's completed righteousness to those justified. The imputation. We see 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in him. I consider that the greatest exchange in human history. By faith, Christ takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame. And what does he give us in return? His perfect righteousness. Rome says, no, that's not true. Justification is the infusion of righteousness, which renews the interior man. Are you beginning to see how Rome has confused sanctification with justification? The Bible teaches justification is by grace apart from works. Christ's righteousness is given as a gift. We see that in Romans 5.17. And Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of righteous deeds we have done, but because of his mercy. Rome says justification must include good works. In fact, when a Catholic commits a mortal sin, they're de-justified, and now they need to be re-justified. And in order to do that, they must merit re-justification by making satisfaction for sins through penance, works of mercy, and prayer. I understand you have a Latin Vulgate over here. The translation from the Latin Vulgate into English transliterated the word repent into penance. So Catholics must do penance, not repent, but do penance. By the way, it also says in Genesis 3 that she will crush the head of the serpent. That's why you go into Catholic bookstores and you see a statue of Mary with a serpent's head under her heel on top of a globe because of the trans mistranslation of Genesis 3. So after justification, God no longer takes our sins into account to be punished. Don't you love what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5? God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Not counting men's sins against them. Romans 4.8, blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. 
Why is that so? Because all of our sins were placed on Christ. You know, when I share that with Roman Catholics, you know what they say. So all you have to do is believe and then you get to keep on sinning? No, I take him to Titus 2. The grace that brought us salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright life. No, because of what Christ did for me, I want to live my life pleasing to him, saying no to sin. But Rome says, sins committed after justification will be punished either in purgatory or in hell. The Bible teaches that God promises to glorify everyone he justifies because those justified can never be condemned. Don't you love the promise in Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You see, condemnation is the opposite of justification. Everybody in this world is either justified or condemned. And once God justifies us, there's no condemnation. I was uh, taking a group to Israel on a cruise many years ago, and there was a Roman Catholic priest on board, and he was easily identifiable with his collar. And so I engaged him with the gospel, and I, I talked about justification with him. And I asked him, is it true that an infant is justified through water baptism? Yes. And that infant grows up to be an adult and commits a mortal sin, and they are de-justified and headed for hell. And if they die in that state, they'll go to hell. Yes, that's what we teach. I said, well, how do you explain Romans 8.30? Those God justifies, he glorifies. He scratched his head and said, you know, we just don't have an answer for that one. Rather than submit to the authority of the truth of God's word, we just don't have an answer. Religious deception, religious bondage. Rome says God condemns to hell everyone who dies in mortal sin. Well, when you look at Rome's doctrine of justification, it's diametrically opposed to the biblical doctrine. One was revealed by God, the other was invented by men. One was based on the perfect, finished, all-sufficient work of Christ the other on the imperfect works of sinful man. One offers divine assurance. The other one offers only a false hope. Devoted ambassadors for Christ will not blur the lines between antithetical teachings. We cannot paint gray what God has painted black and white. We must do as the scriptures say and destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, I got a little humor for you. Martin Luther, no, the door was fine. I was just fixing your theology. <laughs> and you can see how much their theology needed to be fixed. Well, in 1545, Rome deliberately and dogmatically departed from the gospel at the Council of Trent. Her apostasy is documented by over 100 infallible anathemas that condemn anyone who does not believe Rome's corruption 
of the gospel. And it was here that the council placed the Bible on the list of forbidden books. The council also elevated religious tradition to be equal in authority to God's word. This is why the reformers cried out sola scriptura. It's because the Catholic Church had elevated their tradition to be equal. Anyone who does not submit to Scripture as the supreme authority for truth is prone to deception. So after the Vatican, the Vatican attempted to reverse the Reformation shortly after the Council of Trent, Luther responded, Popish writers pretend that they have always taught what we now teach concerning faith and good works, and that they have unjustly been accused of the contrary. Thus the wolf puts on the sheepskin till he gains admission into the fold. Well, today the wolf is successfully gaining admission into the sheep's fold because some pastors are making the gospel so inclusive that anyone who names the name of Christ is welcomed. My wife and I found out that a Roman Catholic Monsignor was invited in to kick off a men's Bible study at Park City's Baptist Church in the Dallas area. So we got up at five o'clock in the morning, we drove down to the church, and we began handing out our gospel track, Rome versus the Bible, as men were going into a Bible study led by a Roman Catholic Monsignor. It wasn't 15 minutes after we we're passing our track out that the pastor of the church came out and asked us to leave. I said, wait a minute, let me see if I have this right. You have a wolf in sheep's clothing teaching your men from the gospel or the Roman, the book of Romans, and you're asking a brother and sister in Christ to leave the premises? Yes, that's what I'm asking. So we stepped off the church property into the street and we continue to pass out our gospel track, Rome versus the Bible. Why would we do this? Because we didn't want the people going in to believe what the Roman Catholic Monsignor had to say. There was another Roman Catholic priest invited into First Baptist Church of Plano. I heard about this also, and I went to attend just to hear what he would say and why he would be invited in. He taught out of John 17 that we all need to be kept, come together as one. At the end of the message, the pastor got up and said, the priest will welcome any of you that want to ask him questions. So I got in line, I waited my turn, and I asked him, I said, you called for unity with all of these members of First Baptist Church. Why didn't you tell them about the anathemas that condemn everyone in here for not believing the Roman Catholic gospel? He whispered to me, we don't talk about that anymore. And so knowing that people were listening, I said, why don't you talk about all the anathemas that condemn everybody in this church? I didn't want anyone to leave there deceived by this Roman Catholic priest. That's their whole movement to join everyone together under the papacy. And we have so many willing partners. Well, the Vatican's current strategy to re reverse the Reformation actually started at Vatican Council II in 1965, the decree on ecumenism. 
And then you had Chuck Colson and Richard John Newhouse signing Unity Accords in the 1990s, evangelicals and Catholics together. Believe it or not, there was a joint declaration on justification between Catholics and Lutherans in 1999. You just saw how diametrically opposed the Catholics are to the Lutherans on justification. Why would they sign a unity accord? And then most recently, the Manhattan Declaration, 2009. These unity accords are calling Catholics and evangelicals to be co-belligerents in the battle for the sanctity of life and the biblical meanings of marriage. Those are good things to be fighting for. But there is so much more at stake than winning the cultural wars. We're also fighting the age-old war against the truth that is being waged by the powers of darkness that seek to undermine the gospel. If you were ever to read the Manhattan Declaration in the opening paragraph, you will see it states, we are Christians, Catholics, Orthodox, and Evangelicals who have joined together across historic lines of ecclesial differences. Listen to this. To proclaim the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in its fullness. Well, this statement, it's just a diabolical lie. We don't share a common faith in the gospel. It's utterly false. And yet, do you know how many evangelicals have now signed the Manhattan Declaration? Over 640,000. Many of them are signing because of highly influential, highly respected evangelical leaders. I want to share some of the names And I think you'll probably gasp at some of them, but you need to know. Ravi Zacharias, Al Mohler, J.I. Packer, Johnny Erickson Tata, Daniel Aiken, Randy Elkhorn, Kay Author, Mark Bailey, past president of Dallas Seminary, Gary Bauer, James Dobson, Jack Graham, Wayne Grudem, Tim Keller, Richard Land, Josh McDowell, David Platt, plus a lot of most reverends and right reverends from the Roman Catholic Church. So as Christians, we cannot be passive or indifferent towards any distortion of the gospel. And there is not a more critical issue in the church today than guarding the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. It is the rudder that must guide the church through stormy waters that have been stirred up by every wind of doctrine. The words of Paul in Ephesians 4.14. There's a battle for truth. More than ever, we need to contend for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. Well, we have urged people that have signed this declaration to take their names off, and some of them have submitted a request for that, and they get this response when they ask to have their name removed. There are a number of ignorant, angry rabble-rousers who regularly lie about us to serve their small, twisted propagandas. Some are filled with hate for those who don't comply with their version of Christianity. These fools harm and hinder the gospel. And the executive director 
as a graduate of Wheaton College, once a bastion for conservative Christianity, Eric Tietzel. Who's harming the gospel? Who is hindering the gospel from going forth into the Roman Catholic religion? It's the signers of the Manhattan Declaration. But yet he's accusing us of hindering the gospel. Well, fighting the social and moral issues are important. But let me ask you a question. Does God need us joining hands with unbelievers to win that battle? Look through church history. Look through the Old Testament. God used a remnant to show his power and his glory in winning the battles. Paul penned these words in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's what we need to do. We need to fight the battle with born-again Christians. Stand firm, stand alone. Let God empower us to win the battles. There was a survey of a thousand senior pastors from Lifeway Research that revealed, and this is shocking, two-thirds of evangelical pastors say Pope Francis is their brother in Christ. More than one-third say they value the Pope's view on theology and that he has improved their view of the Catholic Church. These stunning statistics are the tragic results of all the unity accords signed by highly visible evangelical leaders. And this is why we receive so much friendly fire. I must tell you that churches like Grace Bible Church are on the endangered species list. Most churches are compromising now. In fact, very few churches will ever have me in to equip the body of Christ to reach out to this large mission field. Roman Catholicism is a hot potato that people don't want to deal with. They'd rather just be all-inclusive. It's better to compromise than to stand on the truth. And as a result, most evangelicals do not know if the Roman Catholic Church represents a huge mission field, or if it's a Christian denomination made up of brothers and sisters in Christ, by God's grace, we will continue to make the truth known and encourage evangelicals to reach out to those who are on the broad road to destruction. Let me share with you Rome's strategy for ecumenical unity. They used to call us heretics. I don't know if you knew that, but at Vatican Council too, they realize they can't woo us back by calling us names. So now they're calling us separated brethren. And they're calling us back home to Rome for the fullness of salvation. Do you know what we're lacking for our salvation? We don't have the Eucharist. So until we have the Eucharist, we won't have the fullness of salvation. Oftentimes I meet with priests and they're always willing now to talk to us because they're, they're trying to get us back. And one priest told me that you don't have the fullness of salvation until you have the Eucharist. 
I said, no, according to scripture, I have the complete forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And according to your catechism, you don't. I said, I have the promise of eternal life based on 1 John 5.13. And according to your catechism, all you have is conditional life. You don't have the promise of eternal life. I said, why don't you leave your religion and come to Christ? Then you too can have the fullness of salvation. Another strategy, redefine biblical terms to make them ambiguous and acceptable to all. If you read any of these accords, master wordsmithing has gone on to make it vague and ambiguous. Beguile Protestants with Catholic mystics and contemplative spirituality. One of the best known Catholic mystics, Henry Nouwen, is probably quoted by more Protestant pastors than anyone else today. Seduce highly visible evangelicals to promote Catholicism as a valid expression of Christianity. And they're doing a very effective job with this. I want to just share with you some. Louis Palau, I did conferences with Louis. He used to take our Spanish tracks down to South America because he knew Catholics needed to be evangelized. But when his friend from Argentina, Pope Francis, was elevated to the papacy, he said, Francis is a very Bible-centered and Jesus Christ-centered man. He's really centered on the pure gospel. He is a friend of evangelicals. Just a blatant lie. How about Rick Warren? He's called Francis our Pope and has pushed the Jesuit agenda for religious unity. This one may shock you. You may be familiar with Robert Jeffress, First Baptist Church in Dallas. He's been the go-to pastor on Fox News a lot because he's Catholic-friendly. When Pope Benedict resigned, he said the Pope was a wonderful, dedicated Christian man, and we celebrate the ministry he had. I have also done conferences with Robert Jeffers. I immediately emailed him after I saw this television interview. I said, how can you celebrate the ministry of a man who shut the gates of heaven to those who wanted to enter with a false and fatal gospel? And he emailed back and said, Mike, whenever I'm on public TV, I cannot bash Catholics. And I wrote back and said, that wasn't my question. You could have done one of three things. You could have spoken the truth about Pope Francis, or you could have remained neutral, or you could have deceived people by saying what you said. He is a false prophet and yet you wanted to celebrate the ministry he's had? Was the Reformation a mistake? A graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary who pastored one of the largest churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Irving Bible Church, in his church bulletin, he made this statement. The rift that occurred between Catholics and Protestants 500 years ago is theological pettiness. In other words, the reformers who were brutally murdered and tortured and burned at the stake died because of theological pettiness. He said, we'll have plenty of time in heaven 
to figure out who was right about purgatory and Mary. John Paul was a man of God whom all Christians should admire, thank, and emulate. Can you see the battle that's raging? I don't know if you're getting a lot of this in California or not, but it just seems like it's everywhere. Evangelicals just compromise. It's almost like they've given up the fight. No longer contending for the faith, but compromising. And I really think it's a lot to do with the flesh. They want to become more popular. They want to become loved by more people. They want to become more influential. They want to gain a larger following. Well, there's a warning that they need to heed. Those who embrace false teachers without challenging their ears leave their own convictions and beliefs open to question. We will all be held accountable for the souls who are misled by our unwillingness to contend earnestly for the faith. We all need to defend the glory and honor of our Savior by exposing the evil deeds of darkness with the light of God's word. Consider the words of John MacArthur, who's always had a clarion voice when it's come to these issues. He made this statement in Dallas, Texas, on live radio, KCBI. Someone in the audience asked him, what do you think of radio stations that promote, Christian radio stations that promote Roman Catholic events? And this was John's response. Catholicism is a false system. It's not the church of Christ. It's the church of Antichrist. If you follow Catholic theology, you'll go to hell. I'm not saying that to be unkind, but to be truthful. Being truthful is the only way to be kind. People need to come out of that system. John spoke these words because he loves Roman Catholics. The truth must be told. It must be told not only to Catholics, but also to evangelicals. It is a mission field. And yes, there may be some born-again Christians in the Catholic Church, but they're no longer Catholic. And eventually, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will lead them out if they're truly born again. That's why the Great Commission is to go and make disciples, not decisions, but disciples teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded. Well, Catholics and Christians are divided on the essentials of the gospel. They're divided on how one is born again. The Catholic Church says it's the efficacious waters of baptism. We know it's the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. We're divided on how one is justified. You've seen the differences there. We're divided on how one is purified of sin. Rome said it's the fires of purgatory. We know it's the precious blood of Jesus. We're divided on who mediates between God and man. Rome has many mediators, the priests and the saints and Mary. We know there's one. We're divided on the sufficiency and the necessity of Jesus Christ. We're also divided on the path to paradise. We can never have unity with the Roman Catholic religion. There's a popular bumper sticker that if you know Jesus, you'll know peace. When there is no Jesus, there is no peace. I was inspired to come up with a corollary. If you know doctrine, you're going to know division. 
And when there is no doctrine, there is no division. And that's what the ecumenical movement is all about. That's what Promise Keepers was all about. Let's suppress doctrinal truth so we can all come together and sing Kumbaya. No, we have to have doctrine. Jesus Christ came to divide father from son, mother from daughter, believers from unbelievers. The gospel divides people. I think you would all agree that divine division and truth is infinitely better than satanic unity and error. And that's what the devil's doing. He's trying to unite all people for his global religion. He's been very successful. So what do we do with this message? We need to contend for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. Ecumenism is an outright rejection of our Lord's desire for his church to be sanctified by the truth. We have been called out of the world, a people for God's own possession. We have been sanctified by the truth. We cannot compromise it. I love this quote by Martin Luther. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the devil is at that moment attacking, I'm not professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. So what must we do? Remain sanctified by the truth. John 17, 17. Enlist in the Lord's army to fight the good fight of faith. The fact that all of you are here tonight, I know you've reported to the commander in chief. You know there's a battle raging. It's a battle for the souls of men. It's a battle between the truth of God's word and the lies of the devil. We need to test every teaching with the authority of God's word. We need to stand firm, contend earnestly for the faith. Jude 3. Never ever let a lie of the devil go unabated. If someone in a circle of conversation spews a lie of the devil, you have every right to defend the glory and honor of your great God and Savior. Don't ever let it go unabated. Stand up and speak the truth. Exhort and reprove with divine authority. And we need to evangelize those who are lost in religion. Churches that are spiritually and biblically thriving are the ones that are unashamedly standing on the word of God, exalting the name of Jesus, contending for the faith, and boldly proclaiming the gospel of grace. Grace Bible Church is one of those churches. You are blessed to be part of this church. Pray for your elders. Pray for your pastor that they would continue to stand firmly on the truth of God's word. Because of everything that's going on in ecumenical unity, I was inspired to write a book contending for the gospel, for the glory of Christ and the sanctity of his church. We cannot let this ecumenical unity continue. It continues to gather steam. More and more evangelical leaders are misleading people and confusing people. And so more than ever, we need to contend for the gospel. We know that the deception's only going to get worse. What did Jesus say the signs of his return would be? 
He mentioned many signs, but he repeated one sign three times. Great deception. False teachers, false prophets, false Christ will arise to deceive even the elect if possible. A book I've written to equip you to be effective witnesses to this huge mission field, preparing for eternity. It's a book you can not only equip yourselves, but it's written in the spirit of love and compassion. It's written for Catholics as well. It forces Roman Catholics to make a decision as they read this book because I put the word of God right alongside the catechism and they see that they cannot believe both. That's how the Lord saved me. I knew I couldn't believe both. And then we have gospel tracts. I firmly believe that as you give the gospel verbally, it's important to leave it in written form because who's going to remember everything you said? We've got gospel tracts for every occasion. One of them, the greatest gift is all scripture. You are literally sowing the imperishable seed of God's word, as Peter said. We've got three tracts dedicated to reaching Catholics. Our most popular one is our most recent one. You can, uh, where will you spend eternity? That is such an easy track, not only to give away, but to get people talking about their eternal destiny. How many times when you ask people, what's going to happen when you die? Where are you going to spend eternity? Well, I hope it's heaven. Did you know the Bible says you can know for sure? So some excellent gospel tracts. Also DVDs. Many of the messages I've done in different churches and conferences are available on DVD. Two messages on each DVD. We've got a newsletter that goes out on the first of every month, and um, it's a newsletter that will equip you and encourage you for the work that the Lord has laid before us. I hope you realize that we're living in the last days, and when the rapture of the church happens, the gospel witness goes to heaven. There will be no gospel witness on this earth. How many loved ones, how many friends and neighbors have you not witnessed to? We need to have a sense of urgency, don't we? So I hope this message has been an encouragement for all of you. We know what lies ahead. We know it's only going to get worse. So do we have time for questions you want? Yes. Do you have... Do you have this um, conference in Spanish? Well, no, but if somebody could translate it, that would be great. We have three different gospel tracts in Spanish, plus my book, Preparing Catholics for Eternities in Spanish. And I'm glad you asked that because we give that book away free in PDF form. And the reason we give it away free is because it's so expensive to mail it overseas to Spanish countries. So anybody that's got an email address, we send out the Spanish book free of charge. So yes, we do have Spanish resources, but unfortunately not these DVDs. Anybody else? I actually have a question for you, Mike. I have a Roman Catholic coworker who had asked me the question saying that evangelicals claim to interpret the Bible literally 
Uh, and so why do we not believe that the elements of the Eucharist are the literal body and blood of Christ, if that's what he appears to have said? Well, we interpret the Bible literally when it calls for literal interpretation. But we know from John 16, 25, Jesus said, I spoke to you in figurative language. And we also know that whenever he spoke in crowds of mixed believers and unbelievers, he spoke in parables. We know John 6 was a mixed crowd. There was unbelievers there because in the end they departed from him. And so he spoke in figurative language. I often ask Catholics if you think everything in John 6 is literal, Jesus promised eternal life for those who eat his body and drink his blood. So why do you take the eating and drinking literally, but not eternal life? See, Catholics don't have eternal life. They have conditional life. So it's a good question to ask them. Why don't you have eternal life? And so, you know, we can talk about John 6 a little bit more, but if you have your Bibles, you can see John 40 and John, John 6, verse 40, and John 6, verse 54, give you the same results. One says, if you behold and believe in Jesus, I promise to raise you on the last day. And the other one says, if you eat my body and drink my blood, you have eternal life, and I promise to raise you on the last day. So what happens if you behold and believe, but you don't eat and drink? Do you have eternal life, and will you be raised on the last day? Or what happens if you eat and drink, but you don't behold and believe? So the only way those two verses can both be true is if one is literal and one is figurative. So it's very clear that eating and drinking is figurative language. That's helpful. Thank you. Sure. Back Anybody? here. Hi, <clears throat> uh, thank you for coming. Um, I know a lot of Catholics, and I always, it takes too long to say it all, but I'll tell them that the Bible says to call no man father except our Heavenly Father, and it says to not make any graven images of things that are in heaven or on earth, and they do that a lot, and also not to worship any dead dead relatives or dead people, like Mary and the saints are all dead, and they do that. But it takes too long to say all that, and I feel like I lose them, and they just, since they don't know the verses themselves, is there an easier way? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked the question. Those are tangential issues. When you witness to a Catholic, if you can remember three things, number one, you have to establish the supreme authority for Scripture. Because unless you do that, they're always going to say, well, my Pope says this or my tradition says that. So establish the supreme authority for Scripture. And you can take them to 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching for reproof. Reproof means to expose error. And it's also useful for correcting. Once you've exposed the error, then you can correct the error and then for training in righteousness. So scripture is the word of God. There's no higher authority than God himself. He's revealed himself through his inspired word. So it's easy to see the word of God must be supreme. And the second thing is establish the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. 
He did everything necessary to save sinners completely and forever. Catholics will be unwilling to let go of all they're doing until they know Christ is sufficient. In fact, you can tell Catholics if you add anything to the perfect, finished, all-sufficient work of Christ, you are insulting him because he did it all. That's why salvation is by grace. And the third thing, when you witness to Catholics, taken the 1 John 5.13, I write these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know right here and now that you have in your possession eternal, everlasting life. That's good news to a Catholic who only has conditional life. They don't know where they're going to spend eternity. And so those three things, supreme authority of Scripture, sufficiency of Christ, and the promise of the gospel, if you'll stay focused on those, you're echoing the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 too. I want to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. Don't go off on the rabbit trails. Keep coming back to the cross and what did Christ accomplish, okay? Yeah, thank you. And sure. one more thing real quick. What if when they tell you uh, faith without works is, is dead, dead faith? Yeah. Um, because then that justifies them doing all these works to work their way into heaven. Uh, do you have something against that argument? Well, sure. Um, you know, James is contrasting dead faith with living faith from God that's enduring. You know, if, if you see the picture of faith is the root if the root is alive, it's going to produce good works, okay? If the faith, the root, is dead, then there will be no fruit. There will be no evidence because the faith is dead. And so what James is saying is, if you have enduring faith from God, it will produce good works. If you don't have living, enduring faith from God, you have a dead, spurious faith, and it will be evidenced by no outward appearance of a changed life. So it's not us doing the works. It's the no. Holy Spirit doing the works through us. I, I would take them to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You know, Paul says it's by grace apart from works. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. But then in the next verse, he says, now that you are a new creature in Christ, you do the works that God has prepared for you to walk in. So another way to look at it is all of our works before justification are filthy rags according to the prophet Isaiah. After we have been justified and made a new creature in Christ, then we do the works that God has prepared after we're new creatures in Christ. Okay, and we do them with a different motivation. Catholics do their works in order to be saved. We do our works because we have been saved out of love and gratitude for having been saved. So the timing and the motivation of works is so important. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you so much. Um, uh, my wife is Hispanic, and the reason why I asked the question, if we have it in Spanish, uh, she doesn't speak English. I, she doesn't drive, so I have to take her to church. And I attend church with her. I'm very, very uncomfortable because I know uh, what they're teaching is not accurate. And I, I'm trying to figure out, should I be going to church with her? I mean, how can I? Because she knows how I felt. We've gone round and round with 
her tradition is more important to her than what the Bible says. How well, this I is what I would do. I would tell her how much you love her, and then I would say, but I love my Savior more. And I would say that my Savior wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I would be disobedient to my Savior if I took you to a church that deceives people about life's most critical issue. Thank you. Do it in love. I love you, but I love my Savior more, and I cannot be disobedient to him, okay? And you're the spiritual leader. You're going to be held accountable, okay? All right. Thanks for asking the question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Hello, Mike. Thanks for, for, being, uh, for coming here to California. Uh, my husband and I know you through YouTube. We're happy to be here. Um, I know you recommend that we stay, um, when we witness to a Catholic, that we, uh, that we stick within the boundaries of that the scriptures are all sufficient. But this comes up a lot. No, we don't worship Mary. We just revere her. <laughs> Can you help us uh, maybe rebuttal that uh, question biblically? Sandra, that's a, an issue that I would avoid. It, I mean, it has nothing to do with the gospel. Remember the three things? Sufficiency and authority of Scripture, sufficiency of Christ and the promise of the gospel. You can deal with the tangential issues later, but what they want to do is they want to take you away from the gospel and they'll take you on rabbit trails. And so just say, you know, we'll talk about that later, but let's come back to the cross. What did Christ accomplish? Okay. I mean, the greatest exchange in human history is available for you right now. You could exchange your sin, your punishment, your guilt, your shame. You can give it all to Christ and he will give you his righteousness. Isn't that the greatest exchange that you could ever experience? Do you know how you can receive that right now? Stay focused on the gospel. Yeah, you know, whether or not they venerate Mary or, you know, that's an issue that's not salvific. So we can talk about that once they're born again. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Anybody else? Any other questions? All right. We're back. <clears throat> yep. um, what was that word you used? It was, there was um, something the Catholics think that Christians are missing. It starts with a U. The Eucharist? Yeah, what is that? Well, through the quote-unquote miracle of transubstantiation, the priest is said to have the power to call the Lord Jesus Christ back down from heaven and change the inner substance of a wafer into his physical body and blood, soul and divinity, such that Jesus Christ is physically present. The priest lifts it up for all the Catholics to worship, which is idolatry because it's not truly Christ. Then he lays it on the altar as a propitiatory sacrifice for the sins committed by Catholics in the previous week. And so Jesus cried out, it is finished on Calvary's cross. 
declaring the work of redemption was finished, but the Catholic Church continues the work of redemption on its altar by offering a false Christ in the form of the Eucharist. And so it's no different from the Israelites who worshiped the golden calf as the true God that delivered them out of Egypt to worship the Eucharist as the true Christ is the same sin of idolatry. And God hates idolatry. He put 3,000 Israelites to death. So we must warn Catholics, you're committing the sin of idolatry. And by the way, if you come back tomorrow, I'll give you the scriptures, but Hebrews 9.28 says, Jesus will return a second time and it will not be to deal with sin because he dealt with that the first time. And so this Eucharist is a false Christ by Hebrews 9.28 alone. But the Bible also tells us when he's going to return after the tribulation, how he's going to return with power and great glory, where he's going to return to the Mount of Olives. And so by the authority of scripture, we can tell Catholics, you're worshiping a false Christ. Okay, come back tomorrow and we'll talk about that more in depth. (laughs) Thank you. Anything else? Well, let me close in prayer and then I'll turn it over to Steve. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the incarnate word, our Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious savior we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we should be proclaiming his gospel from the rooftops. And I pray for all those here this evening that you would give them opportunities with their family members, their neighbors, their office workers, open doors of opportunity. And Father, I pray as they give the gospel, you would open hearts so they would receive the message of the gospel with gladness and joy. We thank you for this church and its willingness to stand on the truth of God's word. And we pray you'd continue to bless it. We look forward to tomorrow's meeting when we can share more truths from your holy word. So we give you thanks and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.